0: is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today is Ahmad Ward, Executive Director for Hilton Head Island's historic Mitchellville Freedom Park. If you've never heard of Mitchellville, then prepare for an eye-opening history lesson. Established in 1862, a year before Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, it was the first self-governed town of formerly enslaved people in the United States. In this episode, Ahmad shares how his five-year plan to exit the world of museums was quickly discarded when he began interviewing for a role at Mitchellville Freedom Park while on vacation in New Orleans. And how a moving visit to the Whitney Plantation, the only Louisiana plantation that senses the experiences of the enslaved population, helped shape his ideas for the project. Plus, we discussed how to communicate hard topics in a palatable way, creating brave spaces for authentic expression and respectful listening, and the ongoing important work of highlighting Mitchellville, a piece of American history that deserves to be widely known, honored, and celebrated. This episode is sponsored by Hilton Head Island. America's favorite island. Well, Ahmad, welcome to The Trip That Changed Me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I normally like to jump in by asking, where did your love of travel originate?
1: My love of travel? Wow. When I was younger... We would always, tra- I'm from Elizabeth City, North Carolina, so the coast of North Carolina. We would travel every summer almost to New Jersey uh, because my my father's favorite uncle, well, he has plenty of favorite uncles, but one of them, <laughs> is up in Jersey City. And uh, we would go and hang out in the summers up in Jersey City. And uh, in fact, I think the first time I got on the plane, I was six or seven years old. So this is an eon ago. You know, it was Different putting kids on planes then, right? You had you had somebody assigned to you and had a little metal stick pen after you flew. Uh so I would flew up on my own to into the Newark uh airport. My my great uncle and aunt picked me up and I would hang out with them for like a week and then my family would come up. So the coolest part about uh that is they had um it's like three or four story. It was all these, it was like almost like a brownstone in Jersey city and the top floor was a big room. And I would always stay up there at the top floor because I could see the twin towers out one of the windows. Uh, so as a kid, you know, it was pretty, pretty cool. You look right into the city. Um, so that's probably where I developed, um, you know, love for travel going up there. Uh, I had people in long Island, so we would cut through the city, uh, to go see them. So that's, that's pretty much where I generated.
0: And then how did you become interested in history?
1: Well, I was actually at, uh, big into art. You know, I was, uh, you know, that's my major. My my um, BA is actually in art. Um, Love to draw, but the thing was, I was an information sponge. So, you know, I'm the kid that would, you know, I might have went outside and play ball with the rest of the guys, and then I might have came inside and read the encyclopedia. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah, because I was like, I didn't know this. Let me find out some more information. So I was one of those people, you know what I'm saying? Um, and especially the sections where they were talking about art or anything. I was just trying to learn stuff. Um, and so in that whole thing about learning kind of uh, develop a a slight love for history. I can't say it was a big deal for me initially, but then when I got a little older, I realized that the more I tried to learn about myself, because there, was, I believe there are things about my history that I didn't know, that's what really kind of pushed this appreciation for history for me, uh, trying to, you know, Maya Angelou said, you know better, you do better. And so uh, I was trying to do better and learning more about my background as uh, a uh, Black person in America and getting piecemeal stuff in school and then having my... Um, my parents tell me, well, look, this is what happened to, you know, this is what really happened to me, just that and other. Because my parents are, you know, that's civil rights movement era. You know, they were born in 1948. So most of their first part of their lives was segregation and all kind of other things. And you grew up in a small town in the South and then you start learning about places. And, hey, I couldn't go in the front door of this place. Or, you know, I had to, there was a back window for us to be served over here and they grew up there and I was like, man, you know. So, I think that's where it came from. My my family always being up front of me about about things that they had uh, experienced and so that kind of put a little little thing in my stomach and then, of course, in order to avoid being an art teacher (laughs) in the state of North (laughs) Carolina, I ended up going to a uh, to a museum studies program at Hampton University. I was Trying to, I looked at all different kinds of things for art. I, when I was younger, I thought I wanted to be a comic book artist. You know what I'm saying? That's, uh, you know, Spider-Man. When I was five, I used to draw him all the time, right? And so that's when my love started with that kind of stuff. But then um, I saw how much work they had to do. I was like, oh, I don't think about it. I don't think I want to do this. Uh, commercial art, art therapy, communications, filmmaking. I looked at all of these things at uh, I really came within a hair's breadth of becoming a photographer. Like I got real close to becoming a photographer.
0: What kind of photography? Oh, man,
1: just I wanted to do a little bit of everything, like not just artistic stuff, but, you know, even like the weddings and portraits. And, you know, I got into it. My father bought me a camera and one of his one of his friends who was an instructor at the university was a photographer. And so they shared some office space. And so, you know, I was learning from Mr. O'Neill and like, man, I kinda think I kinda wanna do this. Uh and I, I really got close to it. And then one of my advisors talked about this museum studies program at Hampton. And I'm like, uh, you know, Alexis joined. I still keep in touch with him. It's like, Alexis, I don't know any black people in museum studies. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, what is that? What is what is this? And so I went to check the program out. And Hampton has one of the most incredible collections at their museum. I'm talking like uh, expansive Native American, this incredible African collection, um, uh, Oceanic Pacific Islander, and they had this really top-notch African-American art situation there. So my minor's in business administration. I want to do things in art. Let me make my, my mother happy, make sure I could have a check coming on a regular basis. So initially this whole museum studies thing was, this would be the nine to five, I'd do my work on the side, you know, there you have it. And So and when I was leaving the university, I was painting, I was doing sculpture, I was doing a little bit of everything, but drawing was my first love. I didn't like deadlines when I was creating, so I was like, okay, this museum studies thing, I'll go work in a museum, I can be in, in, entrenched in the culture somewhere, I thought I'd be at an art museum, and then I would just do stuff whenever I had a chance. and. In my effort to still duck that art teacher situation, I ended up at a history museum called the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And that's really where that uh, early appreciation of history just turned into uh, a minor obsession.
0: (laughs) So what were you doing at that museum? What was your role there? Uh,
1: I always laugh about this because how hard I worked to not, because at that time, all art instructors in North Carolina were like glorified babysitters. Teachers were just dropping their kids off and leaving. And, you know, you don't have time to do anything for real with them. So that's why I went to the grad school program. And then my first gig out of grad school, I was the education assistant at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, where my main job was to going into classrooms <laughs> and talking about the civil rights movement. And uh, various uh, situations from schools all over the Greater Birmingham metro area. I got a chance to be around young people and seeing the light bulb go off in their heads when they learned something they didn't know. And specifically with that city, with so much history happening right there, and these kids didn't know anything about it. And names they had seen or heard of, and oh, I didn't know they did that, or I didn't know that happened here. Or hey, that's my grandmother, you know. Um, that really kind of sparked me so I'm a I am a non-traditional educator
0: that sounds like really meaningful work but I know that you were feeling a bit restless and thinking about leaving that world what was at the heart of that dissatisfaction
1: I was at the museum for and I should call it institute because it was a living institution not a stodgy museum right so I was at the institute for 18 years and. Around that 16th year, I was kind of doing an inventory. You know, she always do life inventories, right? And I was doing the work of a deputy director. But I wasn't getting paid like a deputy director, right? This is a lot of work. I'm spending a lot of hours here. I got relatively young kids. So I just, I had established a five-year escape plan when I turned 40. And what I was going to do is make sure my staff w- was going to be able to take on all the responsibilities. Like I was you know, teach them how to do everything that I was doing and eventually, you know, move on to something else. I legitimately was going to leave the field. You know, I had done a lot of stuff around race and politics. You know, I'm, I'm watching people on, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a uh a bragger. <laughs> okay, that's not really my nature. But I'm looking at people on TV doing this this punditry, and I'm like, I could do what he's doing. You know, I got some I actually know the story he's talking about for real. You know, I talked to the person, you know, for real. Like I've met them. Um, so I looked at opportunities to actually leave the museum field. Um, I was eyeballing a um American Studies program at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I was gonna do something about race and politics. Uh, I had people encourage me to get on Twitter. I was really about to do this whole, a whole different ship, you know, maybe go university. I don't believe anything happens in a vacuum. I think everything happens for a reason. I didn't get the deadline to apply for the program at UNC. Something told me just not, I just didn't do it. I had a small voice in my head in December of 2016 and no, don't, don't do it. And so in March, somebody sent me a um, little prospectus about Mitchellville.
0: Ah, so that's how you heard about it. And then for anyone who isn't familiar with Mitchellville, can you give a kind of overview of exactly what it is and why it's so important?
1: Sure. Uh, Mitchellville is the first town of self-governing formerly enslaved people in the United States. Founded in 1862 on Hilton Head Island uh, after the Battle of Port Royal, which happens in 1861, which freed up Hilton Head uh, from Confederate control and made it a depart the Department of the South for the Union Army. So there was about forty thousand Union troops on the island after that conflict, and so what happens out of the 20 to 24 or so plantations that were on the island. Everybody who was uh, enslaved on those plantations is now de facto freed. But, you know, we don't have any idea what to do next. And so after uh, a few months of wrangling and some situations where folks took some liberties trying to free uh, colored people as long as they would take up a rifle and, and join the Union Army, which, of course, they didn't have permission to do. <laughs> um, you have a situation where Ormsby Mitchell comes in as the commander in 1862, sees the lay of the land, decides to give the contraband, which is what they were called at the time, contraband of war, which is not a positive connotation by any stretch. Uh, decided to give the contraband several hundred acres of property and said, this is your land. You can build on it. You grow on it. Build churches, build schools, You know, cultivate businesses. Uh, have your own set of laws. Each family got a quarter acre of a lot to grow and build on. Uh, They had their own mayor and council form of government, organized trash pickup. You know, it, it was a municipality. And this is happening, this is established before the emancipation. During slavery, in the state that started the Civil War, this is an oxymoronic experience, right? This is not supposed to happen, but it was happening on Hilton Head Island, and I grew up six and a half hours north of here and had never heard about it.
0: Yeah, I remember I I was lucky enough to take a tour of Mitchellville with you a few months ago, which was amazing. It was a highlight of our trip to Hilton Head Island, um, and I remember asking you <laughs> naively, you know, is this is Mitchellville in um, American school textbooks? And you were like, no, (laughs) no, we're working on that. But it's so surprising because once you hear the story, it's like this is a really a crucial piece of American history. And for some reason, well, for many reasons, it just isn't publicly known. It's not general knowledge.
1: Right. Right. And I can't really tell you why Um, this was widely known. Uh, in the country at the time, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, foremost abolitionist, he, he asked to come visit Mitchellville because he had heard so much about it. Um, Clara Barton knew about Mitchellville. Who started the American Red Cross. Harry Tubman, after one of the famous battles in this area, the Cumbie River Raid, where they freed seven hundred and fifty-six people, she personally led a hundred of those folks back to Mitchellville. Uh, you know there was newspaper articles about Mitchellville in major American cities. And there's no widespread knowledge of this community. It just kind of gets lumped into the Port World experiment, and so this experiment was uh, initiated in order to help well-meaning, established folks, right, understand that these newly freed individuals could be self-sufficient, could take care of themselves, could, uh, you know, earn a living, would not be on. the the dime of America, and this is happening specifically in the Beaufort County area, and Mitchellville just gets lumped into this, and not by name, but it was so important that it really should have been by name. You know, it had name, it had residents in the 19th century. By the time we get to the 20th, you don't hear about it widely anymore. And of course, uh, a major hurricane in 1893 wipes out the community. Wipes out most of the sea islands. Actually, it was America's greatest natural disaster for a period of time uh, in the late 19th, going to 20th century. So there was nothing standing. Um, but people still considered this area Mitchellville neighborhood and a story that deserves to be told. That's a really important story, not just for South Carolina but for uh, America. And we're just trying to make sure we can tell it in a in a appropriate, respectful way.
0: So when you first hear about this job you were actually about to go on vacation to New Orleans with your wife. Right. So let's talk a bit about what you had initially had planned for the trip. What was the purpose of the trip before you got (laughs) distracted by this amazing job?
1: Absolutely. Well, um, this whole thing started really five years before that, where a friend of mine, who I consider my brother, you know, I've known him since we were four, uh, contacts me. This is like 2012. hey. I got a conference in New Orleans. I know y'all are close. Uh, he was living in Florida. You know, me and my wife are here. I got to be in in all day. Y'all want to hang out with us on the weekend. It was St. Patrick's Day during the weekend. And of course, I've been to New Orleans before, but never for St. Patrick's Day. So the wife and I drove down. Uh, it's about five hours from Birmingham to hang out with uh, Tony and his wife. And uh, we had a ball. It was the first time I had been there for St. Patrick's Day. And it was like, OK, this is fun. The next time St. Patrick's Day falls on a weekend, we can come back. So five years later, some friends of ours, Sam and Nancy Pugh, we were talking about getting together and said, let's go to New Orleans during St. Patrick's Day. Because Daphina, my wife and I, just talking about how much fun we had uh, during that time frame. Everybody had on green. The fountains are green. There was a big parade down Canal Street. Um, let's go. And so, yeah, okay, we planned to go We were going to hit certain spots. Of course, you know, I'm a bit of a foodie, so we had all these restaurants earmarked, <laughs> right? But what's really interesting is my wife was telling me about a plantation called the Whitney Plantation, which is one of the only plantations that is, the um, interpretation is specifically about the enslaved population. So I'm dealing with like hard topics all day at job, right? You know, civil, human rights, anything that pops up, contemporary, we got to deal with it. And so we doing all kinds of stuff. So at first, I'm like, man, I don't know if I want to do this on my vacation. (laughs) I got to live this every day. We're going to New Orleans. You really want to go to a plantation? (laughs) I'm like, man, I want to, I kind of want to go, but jeez, I don't know. Like, Like, What are the points of being trying to leave and go on this vacation is to get away from this stuff. So I, I got to admit, I was a little, um, I was not into that part of the trip initially. That would change a little bit <laughs> once I got some some detail. Uh, so fast forward a little bit in um, early March. Unfortunately, we, we were riding to Lu, Lu, uh, Louisville because had lost one of her uncles. And so my mother-in-law, This is where it gets interesting. My mother-in-law and I actually used to work together. We worked together. I knew her first. So at one point, because this is how weird it is, I was her supervisor. And then at another point, near the end, she was my supervisor, right? And so the staff knew. And she always says, I did not try to hook them up. I did not put them together. I had nothing to do with that, right? Which is true. She didn't. But if you didn't know that was my mother-in-law, you couldn't figure it out. So we always have people surprised because we're both professionals. I'm at work. I'm at work. She's Mrs. Cooper, <laughs> you know. And so a lot of people didn't know that was my mother-in-law outside the place. And so <clears throat> she's riding with us up to the funeral. And she kind of offhand says, hey, look, somebody sent something to me in an email about some kind of position in South Carolina. And she's like, look, I'm about to retire. I'm not doing anything like this. You want to look at it? I'm like, yeah. Okay, well, when we get to Louisville, I'll email it to you. And so we got there, and I pulled it up, and I'm fascinated by this story. I'm like, I have never heard of this. I mean, honestly, I'd never been to Hilton Head. I've been to South Carolina several times, you know, Charleston, Myrtle Beach. I had never been to Hilton Head and had never heard this story. and So, like, this is, why do I not know this? Like, it went from awe and, and amazement to anger. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm big, t- why do I not know about this? Harry Tubman was there. You know, what's going on? And I grew up right down the street. And so I was talking to Daphne, and i like, man, you know what? I might send him an email. You know, this is like two two years into my plan, right? Uh, I think I might send him something. Okay, sure. Uh, I reached out to a guy on the search committee, Rex Garnowitz. And here's something, you know, when things are for you, they're for you. Rex had actually emailed me about this job a year before, and I missed it. I met Rex in 2015 at Smithsonian Affiliates Conference because... The Institute was an affiliate. I was on the affiliates board that took it because when my boss retired, he said, look, you know about this, you take it over. So I'm the only person on that board. that wasn't the ED, I think, at the time. So I'm on the Smithsonian affiliates board, go to the conference. I meet Rex at a reception. We start talking. He's telling me about the Coastal Discovery Museum because he's the executive director there. And he follows up with the email saying, hey, I'm on the search committee. There's this thing called Mitchellville. Uh, I want to gauge your interest in it because soon we're going to put out, you know, requests. And I didn't, I'd never saw the email. So I'd never seen the email. So when I sent an email to Rex after this, he was like, you know, I reached out to you about this a year ago. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, what do you mean? Yeah, i had actually sent you something about this last year. But if you're interested, I mean, we've, we've interviewed some people we've gone through a couple of processes i don't think we are right quite there so i love to talk to you and so i say hey, man i'm i'm about to go to new orleans but sure let's set up a time you know and i i'll just make sure i'm somewhere where i can talk to you and so we set up a time um and I was on the way down because we all carpooled. And I'm, I'm talking to Sam and Nancy and Nathina about this. I'm like, I might do this. And I used to work with Sam, but Sam had left to do something else. I was like, I think I'm, uh, I'm going to set up this call. And so we would walk around the French Quarter. And then we would, I remember this. We were going to talk at 1130 Central Time. And so we're in the French Quarter, walking around, and not a finally, quiet
0: area for for an interview. <laughs> right,
1: that is not the best thing to do, like an initial job uh, conversation, right? And uh, I found this courtyard with a couple of benches, and they were like, "We just left the court of two sisters, so I'm full." <laughs> <laughs> I probably probably shouldn't have been taking a phone call, right? Um it's like they were like, go for it. Talk to him. We'll be right here. We'll go hang out right here. And so there was a little corridor. They sat down on benches. I found this open space with a, a, a thing that might've been like apartments or something there. And it was a bench. I sat down on the bench, call Rex. And we talked about 45 minutes in that courtyard about the possibility of doing this. He kept telling me about what we were trying to do and and the, the vision that they had for the place and Like, I know you're at a pretty stable position where you are, but you want to think about doing this? And, uh, you know, I got all kinds of things racing in my head right now because it's a little bit of a risk. And he was very upfront. Hey, look, this is a two year agreement with the town. The town, you know, town to put forth some money. You got two years to complete a master plan. And then, you know, you had to figure it out from there. So there was no guarantees. Except for those two years. Okay, I've I've mentioned that we were pretty safe. <laughs> you know, my job was pretty safe. Uh and we were well established. All, the only thing my kids ever knew about was Birmingham. Okay, their whole lives. And after that 45-minute conversation, right at the end, it's like, hey, he's I can set something up so you can talk to um uh, search committee. We can do it over. Shoot, it might've been a Skype call. We're talking about twenty seventeen. So Zoom was not as uh prevalent. It was some kind of video call we were gonna do with the search committee. Sure. Yeah. I'll do it. I'll do it. And so I walk back around the corner and they were looking at me like, What you I think I wanna do this. And at that point, I'd already let Daphne talk me into the Whitney. And that and so we're walking back on the 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 French quarter, and I'm like, okay. This is supposed to be, I'm I'm going to take some notes when we go to this place. And I think this is going to help me kind of sculpt my conversation with this search committee. But I got to admit, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm walking down the street trying to escape, you know, not step on things on the street. Because <laughs> at, that, at that point, we're on bourbon. And I'm thinking to myself, you're a nut. You're crazy. You can't, <laughs> you know, you, are you really, you really going to do this? Yeah, I guess I am. I
0: mean, that role was just made for you. You can't, you know, ignore something like that when an opportunity comes your way that fits you that well. It's just undeniable. I remember once hearing that I got a job when I was at the airport waiting to go to Sardinia. And I feel like it really changed that vacation for me. Like I felt so excited and energized and like full of ideas. Do you feel like after that conversation with Rex about the position that, it changed the lens through which you were experiencing New Orleans in any way.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, I think that's why I picked this for the trip. I like the things that we were doing at Birmingham. I feel like we were making a lot of impact and doing some really cool stuff for young people and others, but I got instantly excited about this possibility. You know, not only was it a chance to kind of, you know, run something, right. You know, it's, my endeavor was never to be uh, executive director for real. I just wanted to, you know, do some some things that would be beneficial to, to community, uh, be at least comfortable enough to make sure bills are paid. Right. Because it's nonprofit, profit. You don't go into nonprofits to, to get rich <laughs> at all. But. Just the story and what it could mean and the fact that there was a lot of people didn't know about it. I spent the last uh, 17 years Well, really, 18 at that point. I spent the last 17 and a half years trying to uplift these stories and this history to people who didn't know it. And this was a glaring situation 100 years before what I was working on right now that influenced the stuff that I was working on. And so I really got excited about it. And so, you know, the Whitney is about 50 miles outside of um, New Orleans to the west. And so on the ride over there, my brain is just going 100 miles an hour about, you know, I think I want this. I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to go into this this plantation thing and, and see what I can find out. Because I heard really good things about it. Now, I, I will freely admit uh, on the way there, you know, uh, just some cultural things for you. You know, uh, black people naturally get it a little cautious when we start going too deep in the country. We don't see things. <laughs> there's not a lot of civilization around. We started to get a little concerned, right? So Wallace is deep in the cut of Louisiana. Okay. Deep, 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 deep. So the road to uh, the Whitney, it was a fork and there was nothing around. There was one gas station over here and then this long road. And so, you know, we stopped at the gas station and Sam and I are looking at each other like, I don't know what we're about to walk into. man, <laughs> So, you know, just naturally getting on our guard just in case. Right. And um, we drove down, we got into Wallace City Limits. And again, I'm telling on myself here. So you, you start seeing some some brown people in the yard. and like, OK, OK, we might be, you know, it's Louisiana. Let's just be real. I've been I've spent all this time deep in civil rights history. So I've been in some places in the South at a job where I was just a little wary, Uh, but it was a really small town. And we got to the plantation and tour buses, cars everywhere. This is obviously a destination point. okay? because you have to plan to go to this place. But there were people everywhere. And it was the most amazing experience I've had at a cultural attraction except for the Apartheid Museum and the Holocaust Museum. I, I have not, because I'm working at a place where one of the four little girls that was killed in the bombing in 1963, we have her shoes on display, okay? And I've seen people just double over it, wrecked when they see this display. This kind of stuff, I'm kind of desensitized just a little bit, because I'm, I'm my whole point is instruction. So, I can take people through a tour and we get to this area. I'm good. You know, there's no problems. Uh, The only places that it hit me in the gut were the Holocaust Museum and the Apartheid Museum in Johannesburg. Holocaust is (laughs) self-explanatory. I don't think I have to go into detail about that. Like, it's just this dread, you know, sadness. I got viscerally angry at the Apartheid Museum to the point where when I came out, we were there, we were in South Africa as an exchange project. We took 10 kids over from Birmingham to interact with 10 kids in Soweto and then we re- and then they came over to the States um, because those those movements, that children's movement in Soweto and the children's movement in Birmingham, basically the same situation. And so we were working, we were working with the people who ran that part museum. So when I walked out of that place, I looked at uh, Wadey Abrams, who was our, our connect, said, you got me. It is hard to get me, but you got me. I was mad in there, <laughs> okay? And so when we got to the Whitney and we had this slave, I think her name was, was Miss Mamie. I, I can't really remember, but every aspect of this place is from the, the insight of the enslaved population. So they take you to, it's an emotional roller coaster. all right? If you've never been to this place. And so while I'm there trying to take notes I'm also just kind of like, you know, your heart is up in your throat because they talk about the dangers of sugar. Sugar is sugar was the most treacherous thing that enslaved people had to deal with. Right? We, we get hung up on cotton and other things. Um, indigo was dangerous because it would poison you. and So people died all the time from indigo. But sugar, the process of creating sugar was absolutely brutal. And people were killed all the time,
0: from the machinery or from well. You the have to
1: boil. You have to boil uh-huh. it down into a, like a liquid before you can get it to be granulated. And so, just the action of dealing with this liquid, it, it was burning people to death. Okay, it's, I mean, just next level uh, brutality uh, to create sugar. And of course, Louisiana is sugarcane. Uh, we saw cabins where people um, were kept. We saw the little detention cages, you know, I, you know, we all, we all know slavery was horrible, but just some of these things. And I've seen a lot of stuff. I've been in places where you you, you really talked about this, but this was different. Um, they gave you a, a lanyard with a placard with a person on it. And, that first trip had such an effect on me. My person was Carlisle Stewart. It was a young girl named Carlisle. I still have that, that placard hanging in my car five years after the fact. Like right now, it's in my car. And so you follow. You can follow the story of your of your child, almost like when you get a, a person at the Holocaust Museum and you find out what happened to them. Fortunately, uh, Carlisle lived to be 87 years old. So uh, she was able to see outside of enslavement but a lot of these folks didn't and there are these humongous black marble structures and had every name of enslaved people in the state of louisiana every name and walking through these pathways it's just there's a section with an angel with a pink chair and a blue chair and that's this whole section of the 2,000 children that died on the plantation site. And there was a revolt where a couple of the enslaved folks got this revolt going to escape and you know, to, to leave. They, they had to you know kill people to get out. They caught all of them, cut off the heads of everyone, put them on stakes. And had it facing the cabins. So there is an area where they make you cut your phone off and tell you you cannot talk. Do not make a noise. And you walk in and there there are these faces on stakes in there. And I'm telling you, this thing just twisted my intestines. (laughs) All right. It just got me all worked up. And I was like, this is really tough. And there's, of course, that has signage, you know, you know, they'd let you know maybe you don't bring your kids in here for that, you know, so that's an adult thing. They do it really respectfully, which is hard given the things I just said, <laughs> but they do it very respectfully and thoughtfully because they really want you to understand how this really was. And that's why people get angry with the Whitney Plantation. Because they want to go see ball gowns, they want to they want to see you know pictures of people drinking mint juleps. They want that whole uh, carefree, easier time, and that's not what it was. It's a labor camp, right? It's a labor camp. And so they had they had a group of uh, people on motorcycles that showed up while we were there, found out what was really happening, cussed the people out at the at the front desk, and left because that's not what they expected. They were expecting the plantations that you see where everything is oh, you know, there were workers here, but yeah, now, these folks acted a complete fool and left um but we were changed, you know, and that whole time I was there, I'm thinking, Mitchellville, given what I know about this place, can have had equal effect, but had you leave feeling hopeful.
0: There's a feeling you get when you arrive on America's favorite island, Hilton Head Island. It's a feeling inspired by wide open beaches and strolls under oak trees draped with Spanish moss, by low country sunrises you never tire of, and sunsets spent together. This dreamy place is created by nature and designed by the tides, the salt air, and the soft evening breezes. This feeling is one you'll keep chasing and only find here on Hilton Head Island. (laughs) Mitchellville is obviously spotlighting a turning point and a real positive moment. Absolutely. So how did that experience at the Whitney Plantation um, start to form those ideas for for what you were going to say in the inter- for your second interview for Mitchellville?
1: Oh, it it really kind of gave me some vision about what I wanted to see happen with the project because there was no, there was nothing uh, in, pla- in, in place already as far as plans. You know they had some foundational work that they had done and the board, it went through amazing lengths to get it to the point where it was to even get the town to put up money for this. Cause this was a super grassroots organization. Um, but that experience at the Whitney allowed me to think of ways we can pull the visitor into this story and have him internalize it like I was internalizing what was happening at the Whitney. Uh, the first thing you go into is to a church. My like, dad had been moved there from another um, plantation and they've got the statues of all the kids. And, my, you know, Carl, I was in there. There's statues all around that church. You watch a, a video. and So, of course, I'm, you know, I'm looking at the notion that I, like church was the first thing at Mitchellville. I'm already seeing how we can formulate the church situation being a, a place, this was a starting point for the Whitney. For us, it would have been a place to really talk about the education because before there was anything, there was a church. That was town hall. That was the the courthouse. That was the first school before they had a the school system. And of course, Mitchville was the first mandatory school system in the state of South Carolina. So that was going to be a very important part of it. So I was, I, that was already helped me figure out how we can start to place interpretation at the park site. I had never seen it. You know, because I again remember, I had never been to Hilton Head. So I didn't even know what the grounds looked like. I didn't know what I was walking into. But the way that those tour guides took you through this situation and there was no living history interpreter. Right? These people had on polo shirts with with the insignia because they were there to tell a story. And that immediately resonated with me because I didn't want, and no knock against Disney, I like Disney, Mickey's great, but I did not want to disney find what Mitchellville was going to be able to put forth or the importance to Gullah culture, right? So I, I wanted to make sure we handled it in a way that it centered the people, just like the Whitney centered the enslaved population. We wanted what was going to happen at Mitchellville to center the people who lived there who created this situation that we're still talking about 160 years after the fact. So it really helped me to go into that conversation uh, with the search committee, which was like the next Friday um, with a a kind of a plan of attack. Uh, And I think it was, again, I I mentioned earlier that I don't think there's coincidence out there. I think it's meant to be that I would have had that conversation with Rex in New Orleans and then go to the Whitney the next day. And it really gave me some building blocks uh, going into that conversation with the search committee. Um, So yeah, I I think, I don't know if I, what level I would have been at if this just happened in Birmingham and I hadn't been at the Whitney, but I do know that it, it really helped to solidify my decision to do that search committee call. and also how i wanted to see the the story play out once we got a chance to get things going yeah there's no guarantees right but you you got to go into everything like you're gonna get it
0: and you got it of course you did which is amazing you guys have done so much good work at mitchellville freedom park can you talk a bit about some of the excavations that you've been doing you were telling us about them on the tour and i thought it was really fascinating
1: sure absolutely Right before I got here, Rex and, and Peaches had been talking. I'm sorry, her name is Shirley Peterson. She wants us all to call her Peaches. <laughs> <laughs> so if I refer to her as Peaches, you know, I'm talking as that my uh, former board chair. Now she's a so now she's our campaign chair. They had reached out to an individual named Matthew Sanger with uh, Binghamton University at the time, and he was doing work at Shell Rings at Sea Pines on the South End, and and Rex reached out to him and said, hey, look, you're already running equipment. You know, you got sonar and you're doing geophysical work. Do you mind coming to the park and we set something up so that you can do some things at the park? Just to see, because we think we know, we might know where a church is, but we're not sure. And so like one of the first things that when I came in, this happened in July, uh, his team came out and ran some sonar. did a, You know, a bunch of names I can't pronounce, but <laughs> magnetometry and resistivity and, So they're running this thing that looks like a like a a go kart over these uh, grids that they pull out with ropes. And so they were able to see underground. And one of the people on that, um, on that team is Catherine Sieber. And now Catherine is our principal investigator. Uh, And she's been working with us closely over the last four years. And uh, they said that we think we found something over here, but we have to excavate to see. And so we were able to find a little bit of money. 2018. Where our praise house is, they they created a praise house structure, and the praise houses were very prevalent in South Carolina and Georgia. Little small worship places, maybe almost like a shotgun house um, situation. That was uh, not a church. You would find them uh, built somewhere near the plantation, or off site, or on site, where the enslaved people could worship. Uh, there were no praise houses in Mitchville because Mitchville had a church there before anything else was there. But just to do the organization's first Juneteenth festival, they built a praise house facade with a little stage up front that looked like the floorboards in the old church. What they didn't know is that they put this praise house directly on top of the imprint of one of the churches. Um, and we found that out what ha- uh at least one side of it in 2018, where they found a shaded right angle, three feet down, and that level, that layer is sand. So you can see very clearly that there was some kind of structure there that matches what we know from the Army maps that we have seen of Mitchellville. The next year, we tried the other side in 2019, and we found the second half of that. So it was matching, the length was matching this building on the map almost to a T. You know the man had it at 30 by 52 feet. What they were finding, in this, I'm using a technical term from the archaeologist, the blob that they saw in the ground, was 28 by 50 feet. And they're like, we are pretty sure, based on the the artifacts we we're pulling out of the ground, this is probably the church. We don't know which church because there were four churches at Mitchellville, three of which are still standing and on Beach City Road right now and are still active. We don't know exactly which one but we think there's a church here. And so I'm like, okay, great. We're just going to build a church here. I'm I'm going back to the Whitney. That church when you first come in, I was like, I I know exactly how to look. Just like that church they shipped in. I haven't looked at some churches. There were some old churches, uh, one in particular on the way to Charleston, just sitting off the side of the road. And my brain is already clicking. Like, I wonder what it would cost to, to buy this church and move it to Mitchellville, because it's exactly the same kind of structure. And then the week before they ended that excavation, uh, one of the one of the members of the team, Emily Sands, just made an offhand comment to me. like, Hey, you know, my, we always find something crazy on the last week of excavation, so be careful, just kind of laughing about it. Like, oh, okay, sure, whatever. And then I got a frantic phone call from Katie the next week, that Monday. And my office is six minutes away from the park. And so you got to come out here now. You got to get out here. We found something and I don't know what it is. And I'm freaking out. And so you don't want your archaeologist to say that to you over the phone. (laughs) So uh, I immediately got in my car and drove over to the park. And just like they had found that this shaded right angle They found another shaded area behind the praise house, much deeper, like six feet down, that looked like a semicircle. But it was as big as like an eight-foot banquet table. And they're like, I don't know what this is. It could be a pit for food. But it kind of resembles a shell ring. It's not a shell ring, but it has the same kind of makeup. It could be something that has some sacred connotation. We don't know what it is. So the experts look at you in the face and say, we don't know what this is (laughs) for real. You might, you might have a little panic. Okay. What does this mean? And so we knew there was a 4,000 year old indigenous imprint in the park. It just so happens that there was a lot of evidence of that indigenous imprint by the praise house. So my idea of this church just kind of, uh, did poof. <laughs> uh it went away quickly. It's, it was like when uh in the Avengers movie, when Thanos snapped his fingers, that idea just kind of turned into dust and went off into uh the sunset. Um because we had to do something about this this indigenous imprint. And so we turned that situation in our plan to a church reflection area, where it'd be the frontage of a church, much like the much like the facades that are already there. And where that hole is, we'd have a seat wall with uh, some designs that would would mirror some of the things that we know about the indigenous nations that would have been in that area. And out of the middle of that hole, a seven foot core sample shaped like a cylinder, where three feet down you get Mitchville stuff, and six feet down you've got this indigenous imprint. So we can really play between these two um, communities, which are equally important and historic. So the Catawba are the only recognized group in South Carolina by the government. But there's a lot of groups around there. The Yamasee were really prevalent in the area. But Katie thinks that it was either the Catawba, the Wasa or the Edisto-Natchez-Cuso people who were in this area. Uh, they also found a much uh, larger uh, imprint from this same time period, right on the back end of the Interpreter Center that I want to build <laughs> on the site. So that means that we have to really, we have to actually excavate that and take it out before we build anything there. Just to be, you know, respectful. Uh, and we would like to get uh, the Catawba to come down. She, she has made an, an, one overture to um, the nation. There's a reservation at Rock Hill. And trying to see if we may be able to coordinate something before we start to build on that area that can come out and either, you know, bless the area or at least do something to honor their ancestors before we start doing some work. We think that's the respectful thing to do. And we always want to do that because we're dealing with a descendant community that goes back 160 years, but then an imprint that goes back thousands of years. And they're just as important. We want to make sure that we're doing all the right things by all the people who are involved.
0: Absolutely. That's so fascinating. And not to sound too woo-woo about it, but it feels like the land has, there's some sort of energy, like it's seen a lot of special things, that land. It's pretty amazing.
1: It is. You really can't feel it when you're there. Um, there's a, there's a special aura to that property. And I think that it's kind of protected, you know. We've done, we've done numerous outdoor programs out there. We never get rained on, <laughs> you know. We never have, like, bad situations with weather. I think we, we respect the land. Land is respecting us. Ancestors are respecting us. And we want to make sure that the descendant communities are first and foremost in what we're doing. So from the jump, we have involved the Native Islander community, and they are Gullah, you know, just Native Islanders because of being on Hilton Head, uh, because they, these are their people the folks who were in Mitchellville, at least 95% have been Gullah. And Mitchellville rests in the middle of the Gullah Geechee Corridor, which reaches from basically Jacksonville, North Carolina to Jacksonville, Florida. So there's four states involved there. And there's a lot of sites in that corridor. So even though we want to turn this into a cultural attraction and people can come and visit and learn more about Mitchellville and why it's important in the 20th, 21st century and uh, interpreting a lot the of themes of freedom, democracy, citizenship, and opportunity. We also think if we can get successful here, some of those other sites in the corridor will benefit from what we do. We think all boats rise. Um, the corridor has its own, you know, there's a commission. They're doing a lot of great work. Uh, we just want to help what they're doing. And another indirect goal, people travel from Charleston to Savannah all the time. Well, between... Those two major cities, there's 500 years of history, and Mitchville is just a part of that. And so we we have coordinated with other sites along that thoroughfare to make sure that we, uh, we everybody gets up to speed because there's a bunch of us building things right now, like the International African American Museum, which will either open into this year or the first part of next year, um, and all the all the places around where we are, like the Reconstruction Era Monument. Penn Center, um, you know, Coastal Discovery Museum, which has recently found that it may have had some enslaved cabins on their property. We want to make sure that uh, people can come to the middle of those cities and spend a whole week just learning about the history of this area and how it connects to them.
0: Amazing. And you touched on some of the programming you do. I know Juneteenth is a huge event every year. What, what have you got planned for this year? Because I know it's kind of growing annually as well.
1: Absolutely. Well, I, I think people are more comfortable getting back into the space. We went virtual and we're still actually doing a virtual situation. And in 2020, we couldn't be in the park. So we partnered with five other African-American museums around the country and did a virtual Juneteenth. And we said, oh, if we get 20,000 people to watch it, it'll be great. So we actually had like 40,000 people watch it. So we did it again last year. And we had 50,000 people watch it, and then another 100,000 through Amazon. And so we were actually working on that again. Last year, we went back to the park, and even though we were coming, this is before the Delta variant, so of course, you know, people felt a little comfortable. We weren't sure how things were gonna work out. We had uh, hand sanitizer and masks for people if they needed it. We still had 900 people last year. This year, we expect that number to grow. Uh, we will return to having our children's village. So there'll be things for ch- for kids to do. We'll have great music, uh, vendors selling everything from sweetgrass baskets to artwork, lots of great food. And we're going to take up the entire circle interior and put things all around the circle. Uh, so that planning is deep, deep into the works right now. Uh, that's June the 18th. We're actually going to go back to a, a three-day situation like last year. Joseph McGill, who runs the Slave Dwelling Project, actually picks locations throughout the country, not just in the South, where enslaved people lived, slept, did their things. And he does a sleepover and talks about the history of that space. So he did this last year for a select few people. And we're going to do it again this year, the Thursday before Juneteenth. And this time we're inviting a bunch of folks to come out, camping enthusiasts and people who like to be outside do a a major thing, a sleepover at the park overnight. That Thursday before, we'll have a little event for donors that Friday night and then Saturday from 11 to three in the park. We're going to have fun.
0: That sounds so much fun. I would love to do that sleepover.
1: (laughs) Well, you got You got to come over. Hey, that's June 16th. So you got some time.
0: Ahmed, you're such an amazing speaker and storyteller how does that factor into your role at Mitchellville? Do you actually do the tours ever? Or is that just something you did specially for us on a press visit?
1: Well, you're so special. I did it just for you. <laughs> uh, but uh, I do, uh, we do have docents that do tours on a regular basis, but I, I also uh, do tours and we have a docent menu that we created for a youth program where we were, Again, pre-pandemic, pandemic messed up everything. Uh, we had high school kids learn how to be docents of the park and did tours in 2019, and we hope to bring that that back. So we have a really uh, curated tour situation uh, for people that come in. As far as I'm concerned, um, I spend a lot of time talking. I am a talker, if you had already figured that out. Uh, but that goes back to being three. Uh, again, another thing from the black experience and being uh you know have a newspaper put in front of you to read and five and five sitting in front of the church reading scripture, right and so just used to expressing yourself and one of the things that is so important about that youth program called MAGIC, which is modeling our ancestors to generate influence and change. The main thing was to teach them written and verbal communication skills because you know, my grades weren't the greatest coming out of high school, <laughs> you know, but I could communicate. And you can always learn some things, but you can't always communicate. I think one of the biggest fears in America still is public speaking. Still, people get nervous and, and just lose all control. And we just feel like if you can communicate, you can get if you can get a point across to somebody. You can sell yourself. And we want to push that. Uh, For me, one of the things that I've been blessed to be able to do is take hard topics historically and make them easier to digest or make them a little bit more palatable for folks. Uh, I think that's the thing that worked well for me in Birmingham. it, It works well for me here because when we start talking about race, class, politics, we naturally get into a couple of postures. Okay. And we do things, except the one thing that we should do. So we run, we hide in plain sight, which means we stick our our fingers in our ears and go, la da, 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 da. I'm not listening to this. I'm not listening to this. We fight. So run, hide and fight. None of them involve listening. And we really should do that more to hear where people are coming from. And so I like to use humor. I'm 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 a little goofy. I don't know if you picked that up. Um, you know, I, I try to keep it professional, but the people who really know me sometimes they see me do stuff like this and like, man, you just really get these people snowballed because uh, <laughs> I'm very <laughs> silly. I'm very silly, and so the use of humor or just trying to to get people's hackles eased, then you can talk to them. Sometimes you got to take the funk out of the room early because if somebody Come talk about slavery or the civil rights movement. People are already getting in one of those three postures, right? And we try to get people even ground and, and do that in ways that humanizes everybody's story. That's what you want to do. We all have biases. We all have opinions. But we can also all be respectful. And you set a tone early that you're going to be respectful and honest, creating a brave space. I'm borrowing this from my wife's work. Uh, instead of safe spaces, we create brave spaces so that we can be honest about the things that that we feel because people have real experiences. And just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. This might be how they grew up, right? And we have to acknowledge that. Once we acknowledge that first and we brave about allowing people to have their speech, we can also be respectful and listen because the Lord gave you two ears and one mouth. I'm going old, old folks say this. And right? You got two ears and one mouth, so you can listen twice as much as you talk. So when we hear people, then we can start to reason with ourselves about why they feel the way that they feel. And I think that has served um, us well when we start talking about things like this. And then turn it into a situation where it is for everybody. Like Mitchellville is not, it's an African-American focused story, but it's for everybody. Anybody can, can connect with freedom. An opportunity. We're all citizens. Everybody can connect to the importance of democracy just because we come from different think, places.
0: Absolutely. I think that's such an interesting perspective, especially in light of this new era of activism that we're in, which is there's a lot of stuff going on online, right? And that's really mobilizing and it's really useful for spreading the word about what's going on and also the history. But it also, it doesn't really allow for a full conversation to take place and for that softening to take place that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, that makes it hard. Um, The internet is both a beautiful and horrible place at the same time. You know, it's allowed us to do all kinds of things and, and touch base with people and keep track, but it also stirs up the worst of us, the worst parts of us, because we engage with people in ways that we wouldn't do with them if we were in person. And I see the lack of personal contact in young people when they're dealing with folks. Like, they, they, we're, not, we're not keeping their feet to the fire about how you engage with folks, how you engage with adults, number one, but also how you engage people who you may be meeting for the first time. Like, there's, there's a level of responsibility that you have with your tongue. That we miss, and that's something that I think this interpersonal era has taken from us. You know, because you know, I come from a place the things you say might negatively affect you, <laughs> right? There are consequences and repercussions for the things that you say, and they they miss that. And then you see kids that are taken aback. Now I'm calling kids and young adults now too, where they do things in the in the job force. Or they do things in general public that'll come back and bite them and they can't see it before they say it. And so then when they get fired or, heaven forbid, somebody uh, punches them in the face, (laughs) they can't understand the reaction. Why did you fire me? Well, did you hear what you said to your supervisor? You can't talk like that. You got to go. And so we miss some of that. We miss some of that. And so, with the youth programs that we want to do on site, the ones that we're already doing, we want to kind of foster that as well, Um, just the, the level of respect for each other, and we want Mitchellville to come to be a place where hard conversations can happen, and we can all either agree to disagree, or at least be respectful in how we deal with each other.
0: I really hope that there's a time very soon when people, you know, will definitely come to Hilton Head Island specifically to visit Mitchellville? And I know you've got a ton of exciting things coming up. Do you wanna talk a bit about what you're most excited about in terms of projects on the horizon?
1: You know, we lost we basically lost 18 months due to COVID. But <laughs> through the course of this project, the thing that I'm most excited about is actually seeing the horizon line. Because we really had to do a, that the first couple of years was a lot of work trying to get a plan developed and get people in to do it. And the, the plan itself. Our plan took 13 months to create. Um, And then right when we were trying to market it to get money, the world stopped. Uh, So we had to pick up again after the fact. The thing that I'm most excited about is I can start to see things formulate. Okay. I can see it. You know, we got some opportunities that we didn't have before. Uh, We're getting some money that we didn't get before. (laughs) Um, uh, We have a connection with, with some things with, a public-private partnership with the town that we didn't have before. And so the project is beginning to move in ways that will have longstanding uh, import to what we do. And I can I can kind of smell that we can start building some stuff out there. So like, there's some exciting things happening. We got some some panels that are in our mass plan that are coming up this year. It will be adding some more signage to the park. We'll be doing some structure. It's, there's some money that they comes in We can actually do the ghosted structures in the park. So we'll recreate the frameworks of the homes where we knew that they are based on archaeology. So people can see, at least get a visual about what it was like living in these small 12 by 15 houses, which don't seem like a lot. But if you don't, if you're in their position, it was everything, Uh, every step. We want to put more things in the park and get people used to what's happening there and and learning more about Mitchellville. We intend to get very obnoxious in the next 365 days about um, who we are on a national level. So we're trying to we're looking at some branding to get us out there in front of people because we believe in people hear the story, they connect to it. It's an American story. It's not just a South Carolina story. Uh, It's a story that has resonance and for everybody. But if you look at a niche market of Uh, African-Americans, depending on the scholarship, anywhere from 25 to 40 percent of all African-Americans trace their lineage back to South Carolina, specifically the coast. And that's where we are. So there's a lot of opportunity for Mitchellville. People just don't know about it. and So we're trying to get that word out there. I'm excited about the potential uh, that we have to do a lot of really cool things in the next year or two. Um, and get really close to getting this thing open. And we get, we've got some targets out there because we got a national strategy to raise money. A couple of these hit, then we're really looking at a roller coaster uh, on the way down the loop, which is going to move fast and uh, put us in the proper position so we can let everybody in the region and the, in the nation know that Mitchellville is here.
0: Well, I can't wait to see how it grows and evolves. And thank you so much for sharing the story of Mitchellville. and little snapshot of your own story I honestly could speak to you all day I feel like you have many more things to share
1: (laughs) I did tell you I was a talker so no (laughs)
0: we'll do a follow-up episode
1: (laughs) yeah yeah my pleasure thank you so much for for having me on and this kind of helped bring back some of that feeling when I was in New Orleans you know standing there on the uh the street in the French Quarter trying to figure out what the heck I was doing (laughs) (laughs) so glad to
0: hear that Before you go, would you be able to do a quick fire round? Sure. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime?
1: I think every person should leave home. I got a couple of things, actually. They should leave home and travel. They got to get out of their space. One of the things that was just really discouraging when I was in Birmingham was we had young people that we were dealing with that had never left their neighborhood. Okay. Their na- let alone the city. It never left the neighborhood. Your worldview changes so much when you leave. When you took those kids to Africa, that was the first time a lot of them had been on an airplane. A lot of the time, uh, first time a lot of them had left the South to do anything. And their worldview is completely changed. They still keep in touch with those kids that they met in Soweto. It just changes everything. And the second thing, and this is a little bit more tongue-in-cheek, I think that everybody should work retail or public sorry, public <laughs> Because <laughs> you get a be- you, you don't treat people the same. If you work any kind of retail or food service, you got a lot more respect for for people who are serving you if you have to do it. Uh so I think everybody should be made at least do one month, if not six.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. It's a right of passage. Um, what's the one thing you never travel without?
1: That is a great question. Besides extra socks and underwear, I I never travel without putting money in three or four different locations,
0: just That's like a pro tip.
1: Just in case, like I I usually have have money on me. I'll put I probably shouldn't say this out loud. Have you have you put a stash in your suitcase, stash in your carry on, and stash on you. Because we've all had luggage get lost, but we've all been in situations where you might get separated from stuff. So when I travel and be gone for a while, I make sure that I, I have that set up in a way that if something happens, I have resource. You know, even if you know, somebody, you know, you're in cities, They look, somebody might pickpocket you or something, snatch your wallet. I might be without my ID, but I'm still going to have some cash <laughs> if I can get back to the room. Right. <laughs> so I never travel without making sure I have resources in several different areas
0: best destination in the US besides Hilton Head Island to learn more <laughs> about history
1: best destination in the United States to learn more about history um I might have a tie here and I'm I'm biased with one of them I think so uh Washington DC just for the tourists I mean you got every everything that you want to learn is on the mall you got the national Uh, uh, Museum of the American Indian. You got the National African-American Museum, Museum of African-American History and Culture. You got any kind of art you want, air and space, Uh, the African art. You can learn a lot in D.C. and off the mall as well. But uh, I got to tell you, if you're looking at 20th century stuff, um, and I know people always want to go, you know, naturally you can say something like Virginia because there's so much history in Virginia, right? But Alabama, I got I to gotta be honest with you. The time I spent in Alabama, there's a lot there that influenced American history. And specifically like Birmingham and Selma and Montgomery. I mean, those things, without those things, we don't have the Civil Rights Act, we don't have the Voting Rights Act without those three cities. So I think learning about history, you cover a lot of ground in Alabama uh, and you cover a lot of ground in, in, in Washington, D.C., which is actually a district, so, you know.
0: If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do?
1: I can go anywhere for a day, Mm -hmm. I would love to go back to the continent. I want to take my kids with me. I would love to take them to Africa at some point. And I really almost picked this as my trip. It was the first time in my entire life that I didn't feel like a minority.
0: Mm, That's life-changing.
1: When I stepped off the plane, the first, when we left the airport, the first person, the people we saw, and I was with my one of my friends who I know forever, Barry. He uh, was an historian and went with us on this trip. There was two men standing outside. And the first thing they said to us was, welcome home, brother. Okay. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. Uh, that is the first time I walked around and did not feel like a minority ever. So I would would love to go back there. Uh, but like a one day, like right now, I go back to New Orleans and go to Drago's. <laughs> <laughs> The best best charbroad oysters. <laughs> Don't tell people here that, you know.
0: Um, do you party. have a recommendation for a book, podcast, or film for a long journey?
1: Podcast, uh, there's a podcast called Code Switch that is very, very um informative. Maybe geared towards African American audiences, but they, they do good stuff. Um Book Lies My Teacher Told Me. If you never read that book, you should probably read it it'll make some people's head blow off now. Uh but <laughs> you should read that book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, or The Autobiography of Malcolm X. It's fascinating. The movie, that's harder. That's harder. I, you know, I'm a movie head, I love movies, but um I don't know if I could just pick one that you anybody needs to see, that everybody needs to see. That's hard to do because there's a lot of them out there, and since I, I already mentioned I'm a history buff, most of them are history. It <laughs> <laughs> would be history-based movies uh, that I, I would want you to to see. Uh, I'll give you a couple, and one of them is a document, you know. So the Eyes on the Prize documentary is almost forty years old, but still the seminal piece on the civil rights movement and what makes America America. Boycott. Which came out maybe 15 years ago? Jeffrey Wright plays Dr. King. It's about the Montgomery bus boycott. It is amazing. Then there's uh, just just some fun movies. You know, I I won't go into the movies I watch just to be mindless because you know you might question me.
0: (laughs) Well, I think we're good with those. I love documentaries, so I'm going to look them up. What's your favorite way to spend a free Saturday on Hilton Head Island?
1: You know, the dolphin cruises are amazing. So uh, we like doing. That, that's pretty cool. And I, and I like going to like Adventure Cove or a place we can do some some miniature golf. You know, I, that stuff is fun to me. You know, it's, you just do that and be mindless with it. Uh, we like to hang out, Shelter Cove. Um, and there's a lot of great restaurants on the island. So, I mean, you can really just throw a rock and hit one that you want to go and, and have fun at. Caligny, every time we have people come into town, and they want to do beach because everybody doesn't want to do the beach. But the people who come in town and want to do beach, we always take them to Caligman because that's like, you know, the the best beach for people who are learning Hilton Head for the first time. You know, of course, the beach connected to Mitchville is my favorite beach. That's not a beach you go to trying to get into the water and just hang out. Um,
0: and finally, where is next on your bucket list?
1: Next on my bucket list for travel... We kinda wanna go to the Mediterranean. I've never been there. Been out of the country about three times. Haven't been there. But, you know, I I kinda wanna do the the I haven't done the Grand Canyon. I've been a lot of places. I've been about 37 states. I've never gone to the Grand Canyon and I've never been to uh, uh Rushmore. I think I'd like to do I'd like to do that. We we threatened a uh before my oldest went, goes to college, which is around the corner. So I've doing like a little West Coast trip and going over there and doing that. We still might be able to pull that off. So I think that might be next on my bucket list is uh, going to one of those spaces. Uh, yes. The, you know, it's, it's touristy, I know. It's touristy, but I've never done it. So I kind of like to do it.
0: Grand Canyon is amazing. And I think that, that feeling of being very small is underrated. It's a special feeling that every human should, should experience a lot. So, yeah, I hope you guys do that. Ahmed, thank you so much. I had so much fun chatting with you today.
1: I did too. Thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full time travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going.